I read a, a news report this week, and it interested me that in 1990, uh, only 10% of Americans had a passport. In contrast with that uh, figure in 1990, uh, last year the latest figures show that that number has gone up to 40%. And it's true that one of the primary um, reasons for that is, is post 9-11, um, with d different border control, that to, to enter into Canada or to Mexico, uh, you need to show a, um, a passport. And so that, that accounts for a large part of the move. But a significant other reason for it, um, these researchers were, were saying, is that there's a generational shift in the way that we spend our money and what we're seeking. In previous generations, that money was often spent on consumer goods and the collection of things. Uh, the current generation is far more interested in um, putting their, their resources towards travel and experiences. And so you get this great shift. And it was interesting, and in, in just thinking about this news and this, this desire for, for travel and, and, and for experience, it, it got me thinking about the writer Jack Kerouac, most famous for his, his book, uh, semi-autobiographical um, book, um, On the Road. And I thought about him, and although he was born in, in 1922, in many ways, I think Jack was the prototype uh, for the modern Western millennial. I think him and his friends were the, the original hipsters, and dissatisfied with the culture that, that they lived in and saw around them at the time, they lived a lifestyle that was defined by a thirst for experience and, and travel, uh, high recreational drug use, a desire for, for community and commitment, and yet a, a deep fear of it and an inability to experience it at the same time. They too had a promiscuous approach to sexuality and a contradictory approach to their faith. In some ways, as the book On the Road, it was almost like the, the prototype and first of the kind of buddy movie, the, the road trip genre, the eat, pray, love, searching for um, the authentic self that's so common today. And so like Jack and his, and his friends back then, a current generation is marked by a desire to find life through the endless pursuit of experiences, travel, and emotional high. Now, whichever generation we find ourselves, whether we resonate and, and see whatever we go into the accumulation of things, whether physical or experiential in travel, we all seek after something in the pursuit of finding the fullness of life. And it was amidst these thoughts, this news article and thinking of, of Jack Kerouac, that, that I opened the Gospel of John this week. And if you have scriptures with you or on your, on your phone, I encourage you to turn with me to, to John chapter 1, uh, verse 35 uh, through to, to 42. And it was in this context I, I read... And the question that Jesus asks the two original disciples really jumped off the page at me. He asked them, what are you seeking? Well, that's a great question, isn't it? And then I looked even more, and I think it's worth even greater attention to us as we look at this text, because in John's Gospel, these are the first recorded words of Jesus. The very first 
thing he says is to ask a question, what are you seeking? And we think about that, it's a great question because it gets to the absolute heart of discipleship. That question, what am I seeking? It asks me, what is my deepest yearning? What is my deepest hope? What is it that I'm fully given to? I also have to admit that when I first read that question, I was thinking about other people as I read it. That's a great question. Other people need to consider that one. And my mind naturally went to more evangelistic sermon. And yet I want to point out that um, we need to hear this because if we think about those original disciples, these were devout um, seekers of the kingdom. They were disciples of John the Baptist. They would no doubt been baptized with a baptism of repentance. Clearly they were seeking the coming reign of God, the putting right of all things. And they were prepared to completely shift allegiances once uh, John points and said, the Lamb of God, and they leave their allegiance and go and follow Jesus. And yet we also know, if we think of ourselves in maybe a a similar way to that, that we know that they failed in many ways. They were so double-minded and uh, turned away, that their hearts were given to other things. They utterly misunderstood the kingdom and ended up rejecting at Jesus at the end. And so it's a question we all need to hear and reflect. What are we seeking? As I pondered that and as I reflected on the text and thought, man, I fall so much short of that. I, I know the right answer. I do. And yet if you were to, to look, I, it's, it's not fully who I am if, I, if I'm honest about it. So what's the difference between knowing the answer? What do I go with it? And I thought, The text really comes alive to us if we consider not us who are asked the question, but if we turn and put our attention on the one who asks it. It is incredible to think about uh, that, and that's what I want us to to think about uh, today. First and foremost, the first thing we see about Jesus when he asks that question is that first he sees them. He turns around and John says he saw them. Think about that. Isn't that what are we seeking for? Isn't one of that our primary heart longings to be seen? To be known? I mean, some of you are maybe new to this community, new to this city. Maybe you've been here for a long time, but there's just hundreds of thousands of people, and it's so easy to feel completely unseen and unknown. Some of us have come back from, um, from Christmas uh, with maybe closest family or closest friends, people that really we desire would, would know us really well. If anyone should know us, surely those closest to us should. And yet, for some of us, having gone home, we realize they don't know us for who we are. They remember us for who we used to be, perhaps. But there's been transformational moments that have happened throughout then, maybe different. And so we don't feel known. We think about our, our, our context at the moment and think of um, racism and the, the struggle for, for minority groups and, and how you can feel in a, as a minority in a culture where your story may not be the, the one that's being told, is not the one that's heard. And so you feel unseen and, and unknown. 
And yet we look here in the text, and the ones that ask us, the one that asks us the question, what are we seeking? Is first just the one who sees us and who knows us. It's interesting later on, um, just the passage following that, uh, the encounter with Nathaniel. And he looks and he knows him, he sees him, he says, I saw you while you were under the olive tree. And Nathaniel's absolutely staggered by this, just amazed that you would see me and would know me. And Jesus responds and he says, you'll see far greater things than this. It's the next thing when we, we think about this one who asks us the question, what are we seeking? It's asked by the one who says, come and see, come and follow, walk with me, see these greater things that I'm about to show you. I think again, our, our culture and generation looking for experience, the emotional highs, in a culture that's taken away the transcendent, cut the creator off, all we're left is to try to find the awesome and spectacular in created things. And so everything now has to become an event, doesn't it? It's got to be, we, we throw away words like, wow, that was awesome. It wasn't awesome. It was okay, but it was, it was relatively ordinary, the thing that we're talking about. He said, that was amazing. Uh, maybe. So, the Super Bowl halftime show has to be this incredible thing and we go to the concert and there has to be this incredible high and ordinary isn't good enough anymore. We have to move out of our ordinary to go to some sort of spectacular event and travel and move and try to find the transcendent. We're looking for this greater thing. I think, um, again, back to back to, to Kerouac, and, and, and on the road, there's um, one of the, the repeated words that comes over and over through the novel is the word, wow. They're always using wow, maybe as we would say amazing or, or awesome. And there's a particular part where they, they finally, uh, they reach uh, Denver, which is where they were heading, and it sells um, friends, uh, they're whooping and, and yelling, and they throw out wows, and they're anticipating the hyper mood that's going to envelop them. And, and yet in this poignant scene, um, Kerouac reveals the need for another kind of word. Up there on the mountain, he says, we fumed and screamed in our mountain nook, mad drunken Americans in the mighty land. We were on the roof of America and all we could do was yell, I guess. Across the night, Eastward over the plains, where somewhere an old man with white hair is probably walking towards us with the word, would arrive any minute and make us silent. Kerouac waits for the word that'll make him silent, the word that'll arrest the constant search for kicks, that'll rein in the hedonistic binge. And they will end the ceaseless wandering on the road. And we too wait with Kerouac for the word that will make us silent. 
It's interesting if, if on the road was the, the book that celebrated and gave the template for a particular way of life, then it was his next book, Big Sur, probably showed us the effect and the consequence uh, of it. Uh, Mark Sayers, in his book, The Road Trip That Changed the World, writes this. He says, um, if on the road launched the rucksack revolution, encouraging a whole generation to chase experience and self-absorption, then Kerouac's book, Big Sur, maps out the consequences of the life script he championed in his early years. Approaching 40 and, and suffering from chronic alcoholism, and running from the media and the movement he inspired, Kerouac retreats to his friend's shack at Big Sur in, in Northern California. And like the jumpers who take their own lives on Golden Gate Bridge, facing the sea, he's exhausted the American continent in a search for meaning. There's no longer any land to consume. There's only the expanse of the Pacific. It's void a reminder of his myth and his mortality. And Kerouac reflects with horror that he's in the midst of a physical and a, and a spiritual and metaphysical hopelessness that you can't learn in school no matter how many books on existentialism or pessimism you read. Kerouac is aging and the handsome young traveler is no more. The road's well and truly gone. And he writes, The face of yourself you see in the mirror with its expression of unbearable anguish, so haggard and awful with sorrow, you can't even cry for a thing so ugly, so lost, no connection whatever with early perfection. And so Kerouac, at the end of his hedonistic journeying and search, comes to the end of the continent, and having feasted on America, having consumed every drug, every last drink, every highway, every fame, sexual experiences, the, the mysticism of the East and the American dream, he writes that suddenly, as clear as anything I ever saw in my life, I see the cross. In shock, he writes, I lie there in a cold sweat, wondering what's come over me for years. My Buddhist studies and Pope smiking assured uh, meditations on emptiness. And all of a sudden, the cross is manifested to me. And my eyes fill with tears. Kerouac, the broken hipster, the fallen literary star, uh, immersed in the reality of his sin, prays, I'm with you, Jesus, for always. And Jesus asked us, what are, we, what are we seeking? He says, come and see. You'll, see. you'll see greater things. Not the created. And on that journey as we see John's gospel unfold as we read it, we take a look and we find in a profound way, that the question that the disciples responded back to Jesus' question with, he says, what are you seeking? And they say, where are you staying? Or more literally, where are you abiding? 
And in a profound way, as they accept Jesus' invitation to come and see, they see the one who is God, who was with God, who was with God in the beginning, who was with God face to face, has pitched his tent amongst them. The incarnate God come to his creation, Jesus revealing the love of the Father. Where are you staying? With us. And we see in the journey, as he says, come and see. We want to find the word that will make us silent. And ultimately, we see the glory of God manifest on a cross. We see the love of God for his creation that rejects him, that worships the creator and ignores the transcendent. And, and there the one who is with the Father, who abides with the Father, makes a way for us to abide in that love as well. We see the glory and look and stand silence as God would take evil and suffering the brokenness of the world upon himself to overcome it, that we might have life. We see the transcendent glory and beauty, God with us in the ordinary. There's one more piece of uh, incredible good news in this text that they already jumped out, and I, I don't want to close with. And again, if you have. The scriptures. Listen to this, this last piece. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John, and you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. If we translate, you'll be called rock. Peter was anything but a rock. Peter wasn't a rock. If there was shifting sand and any ability to put your foot in your mouth, to speak out of time, to um, be impulsive. Peter at the end, who had, I will never deny you, Lord. And yet three times at the foot of the cross denied him, even to a servant girl, the most powerless person in society at that time. And yet, the one that asks us what are we seeking is the one who sees us, who knows us, who is making a way for us to have life in the full. And he looks not to the sin and the broken and the shortcoming of Peter, but to his true self, to who he can be. And he looks and says, you are Peter. You're the rock. It's staggering good news for us. Yeah, there's times where, like Kuro, we look in the mirror and can't see the beauty of what was anymore. Maybe we've even lost a vision of the possible self that we could be. The hope we, we desire to, to seek the kingdom and to seek after God, and yet we fall so short. And yet Jesus looks at us, and he calls us 
and names us to the person that we will be in him. It's a power of transformation. God with us and the Holy Spirit bringing life. And in that moment when we look, the one that asks us that question, we find out that our failure and our sin does not have the last word. A failure in our sin doesn't have the last word. As we reflect on this and the, the relentlessness of life, the, the harried busyness, our, our journeying and our, and, our, and our seeking for the transcendent, our restlessness, encourage us to stop and to pause. And when we hear the words of Jesus, say, what are you seeking? But more than that, will we move beyond us, the one he asks the question, to the one who asks it? And we will look to him, the one who sees us and knows us, to one who invites us to come with him, to fix our eyes on greater things, to the one who abides with us and makes a way for us to abide in the life of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Amidst a, a culture that is seeking the created, will we look to and see our Creator? What do we seek? We seek the one who first seeks us and offers us life in its fullness. Praise God for the good news. God sees you and knows you. Our sin and our failure does not have the last word in Christ. Amen.